I've also written about social media and financial influencers. And the one key takeaway is that you are learning their lessons. So when they lose money, you are also learning that lesson if you follow their advice. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. Today, I'm thrilled to have a conversation with four guests. I am joined by four prominent figures in the world of personal finance in Canada. November marks the Financial Literacy Month here in Canada. And in light of this, Lisa Hannon, the executive editor of Money Sense, reached out to four of us to contribute to her insightful article titled The Worst Money Advice in Canada. What a great title because there's so much bad information out there. Please find the article in the show notes. Inspired by this article and Financial Literacy Month here in Canada, I thought it'd be enjoyable to bring this article into a podcast form where I can sit down with all four of the contributors to the article to really talk about this idea of what is the worst financial advice in Canada. And I was fortunate to be joined by wonderful guests such as Jonathan Chevro, a Toronto-based financial columnist, author, blogger, who has an impressive career that has spanned over 35 years, including roles at the Financial Post and as an editor-in-chief of Money Sense, and he continues to write for Retired Money column in Money Sense. In 2014, he founded the Financial Independence Hub, publishing weekly blogs. He's written many books, including The Wealthy Boomer, Smart Funds, and co-authoring the Global Mail bestseller, Victory Lab. I also have Jason Evans joining me. Jason is a CFP who specializes in helping Canadians 55 plus to prepare for a secure retirement. Having personally witnessed the painful impact of bad financial advice, he is a strong proponent of financial education and unbiased advice. And joining me back on the podcast is Jason Heath. Jason joined me on episode number 43, The Evolution of the Financial Plan. If you're curious to hear more about mine and Jason's conversation, check out episode number 43, The Evolution of the Financial Plan. Jason has been providing fee-only, advice-only financial planning since 2002 and is one of Canada's best-known fee-only financial planners. He's a certified financial planner and a personal finance columnist for Money Post, Money Sense, and Canadian Money Saver. And joining me again for her second time on the podcast is Lisa Hannon. On episode number 90, we talked about the value of financial journalism. Lisa is the executive editor of Money Sense. She has over 20 years of acclaimed journalism experience in Canada. She's responsible for overseeing moneysense.ca, ensuring that it caters to Canadians of all financial literacy levels. Under her leadership, the editorial team has achieved record-breaking amounts of posts. Well done, Lisa. This discussion was truly enjoyable. We first 
talked about the importance of understanding financial flashpoints, those early significant events in our financial lives that really shape and influence how we relate to money, our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Each of our guests shares their perspective on what they believe is the worst money advice in Canada, and you'll be surprised how much of the mainstream advice out there tends to go on the worst money advice in Canada list. Then we start to talk about what is sound financial advice? What are some things that people can start doing to combat against all this bad financial advice out there? Towards the end, we start to shift the conversation. Thank you to Ross Marino for that phrase. But we shift the conversation to talk about the idea of enough. What does enough mean in terms of our relationship to money? How does the idea of enough fit into the financial planning process? When do we have enough? This is a crucial, critical question that we can all ask ourselves. This was an enjoyable conversation. And before we head into the show, if you would like to support the podcast, there's two ways you can do that. One is share this episode with a family, friend, colleague, or post it on social media. That would be helpful. The second way is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. And now I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation on the worst money advice in Canada. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am excited as today we have four guests on the podcast. This is our second multi-guest episode, so it is very enjoyable for me. And today we are talking about a recent article that we all wrote about for Money Sense called The Worst Money Advice in Canada. We are going to talk about that, the worst money advice in Canada, and hopefully we can end on talking about some good advice. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of what is the worst advice in Canada, I thought we would each take a moment to talk a bit about our own backgrounds, often called financial flashpoints, these significant, sometimes big, sometimes small, but they're emotional events that we had in and around money growing up or even as we've grown up. But these events really have left a lasting impact on how we think, feel, and believe about money. Jason Evans, I thought we would start out with you as the article talks about an experience you had as a 15-year-old boy around money with your mother. Why don't we start there and can explain the situation and how, if anything at all, has that situation left an impact on how you think, feel, and believe about money? Yeah, so when I was young, well, 15 years old, I had the the first major experience with money that I can recall. And I re- remember going downstairs into my basement and my mom was looking for some documents that she needed. She had papers all around her and she was very, she was very distressed. And I asked her what she was looking for. And she said she needed some documents for her investments. And she was very clearly panicked and worried. And as she was looking for them, she said that if she doesn't find them, we could lose our house. And so immediately that triggered like an emotional response for me. I helped her look for the documents. It took a, took a while to do that, but I didn't quite understand what was going on. I wasn't interested in investing in that sort of thing at a young age, but that was the first time I became aware of money. And it wasn't until a few years later that I found out that what had happened was that 
my mom's investment advisor recommended that she borrow against our house to invest in the stock market. And the timing of that was about as bad as could be. It happened only a few months before the dot-com crash of 2000. And over the next few years, my mom's accounts dropped significantly in value, but she still had to keep making those payments to the to leverage loan against our house. And so that put us in real danger to lose our house. And that's left a significant impact on me and how I think about money and ultimately led me to to my career as a financial planner. And it really showed me the importance of good financial advice and the danger of bad financial advice. You know, Jason Evans, it's interesting as I was looking at your website and it was abundantly clear that you hold out as a fiduciary and you didn't hold back, not that you should, but I got the sense that you were proud of being a fiduciary. And just hearing that story, I, I feel like I can get a sense as to why that is so, I guess, meaningful to you. Maybe just touch on why you feel, outside of what you just talked about, being a fiduciary is so important. So it wasn't until a few years after that situation when I was 15 that I found out the full scope of what happened. And unfortunately, my mom passed a few years after that. And as I was going through some of her estate documents, I found the full story. And part of that was that her advisor received a large commission on the mutual funds that she had recommended to my mom. So there was that conflict there between what was good for my mom, who was a, a widow with two children, and what was good for the advisor, which was the larger paycheck. So after seeing that, I knew I wanted to get into the industry and give people good advice, but I knew that a lot of the industry was focused around investments and sales, and that really wasn't for me, but I knew how important the, the good advice was. It's so interesting how I think for many planners or writers like Lisa and John that we had these past events that really have influenced our careers. John, let's go over to you. I understand, and maybe this isn't the one you want to talk about. I find it kind of interesting, but you sold some Apple stocks right before the iPod came out. I don't know if you have numbers, but I did some Googling. I, I found out that the the stock was about 23 cents in 2000, right before the iPod came out. And then just five years later, it went up to $2.18, which is like an 847% increase. So let's talk about this. How has selling your Apple stocks before it went up 847% left a lasting impact on how you think and feel about money? <laughs> it might have been more than that. <laughs> it was, um, I think it was at the time, it was $5,000 in uh, my RSP. And ironically, I did have a commission-based financial advisor at the time before I went to a fee only like Jason, not Jason, but someone like him. And so this advisor said, uh, I said, well, I was thinking of selling my Apple. It's sort of broken even, but I'm worried. You know, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Go, yeah, go sell it <laughs> and buy something else, right? So he didn't really stop me from that mistake. Ironically, I, I mean, not everybody's a fan of Jim Cramer, but I, I, I do listen to his stuff. And I think he's, semi-responsible. He does, you know, he says your first $10,000 should be an index fund, not individual stocks. Uh, increasingly now I'm at the right old age of 70. I'm, I don't know why I bother with individual stocks at all. I wrote a, a story for Lisa and Money Sense a couple of months back on 
I just I discovered that all right, really, really bad investments. We're talking about uh, what's the one? Um, Lordstown Motors went bankrupt <laughs> quite recently, and so I, I actually saw a few things that had gone to zero within months. So I, I realized belatedly that you know. For someone like me at 70, I don't really need to take risks that aren't necessary. And really, for fixed income, you know, a ladder of GICs and maybe equity ETFs or asset allocation ETFs is really all I need to do. So I basically have been purging myself of all these mostly American newsletters that, as far as I can see, they have no accountability. This, this guy from Lord, who did Lordstown... To my knowledge, it was a front page rave, and it was five, four out of his eight pages that month was on Lordstown. I don't, I, I don't think anybody's ever called him on it. I would have named him, but at least I didn't think I should name him, so I didn't. <laughs> and enough about Apple. But the, the point is, individual stocks can be dangerous. And, and oh, the reason I mentioned Kramer, ironically, he had said, always says, and he says it of NVIDIA as well, own Apple, don't trade it. Own NVIDIA, don't trade it. So had I been listening to him at the time, I might have, I know but your calculation, Sean, but I guess I thought it was about a half million dollar mistake, that little Apple episode. It's interesting you said 5,000. On my calculation, I randomly picked 5,000. So. so there you go. It was a typical RSP contribution. That wasn't all, but it was, you know, must have been half that year or something like that. Live and learn. As I said in, in one of my columns, or where Lisa quoted me, I guess, the Jim Croce song, I learned the hard way every time. <laughs> My curiosity is just bubbling about the Jim Cramer, and I feel like I'm going to weave that back in at some point. However, first, Jason Heath, let's go to you. When you recall some sort of emotional event in regards to your money story, can you, can you touch on that? And maybe just add in, if at all, did that, in hindsight, shape you becoming a financial planner? Yeah, fair question. You know, I, I think it's interesting just echoing John's comment on uh, buying individual stocks and mistakes. I think back stock that I ever bought, I was in university. It was right sort of before the dot-com bubble burst. And I bought shares of JDS Unisys. I don't even remember what JDS did or the ticker symbol was JDSU. I think I learned about it in a finance course or something like that. Somebody was talking about it. And again, first investment I ever bought was not a diversified portfolio, lots of bunch of money on JDS. And, you know, sort of my first foray into investing. And I think, you know, it's it's something that, that taught me early on. You can make poor decisions, bad money decisions, you know, without support of, you know, financial advisors around you, without support of financial knowledge. I didn't have any business investing in stocks or the stock market and just kind of took a bit of a flyer and got burned on it. And I think it's important, especially these days, where investing has become still gamified for, for people. And I think that everyone wants to get rich quick by a, a cryptocurrency or a stock or something like that and try to make a bunch of money. And unfortunately, you, get, you can't get rich overnight. Or get rich quick, schools tend to backfire. And I think getting rich slowly is a better strategy for most. But that's not fun, getting rich slowly. I, I can't say it necessarily influenced my career per se, but you know, I think that definitely as I've learned more and more about the financial industry, it's become apparent to me that knowledge is power. I like sharing knowledge with people, whether it's professionally, whether it's through work I do in the media. 
And I think it's really important to, to learn as much as you can about finances, even just so you know the right questions. Ask the professionals that you have around you. Thank you, Jason. Well, perhaps if those JDS stocks went well, you would have been proclaiming get-rich-quick strategies. Yeah, and, Apple. Sure, yeah. 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 Or, or Lord's General Motors. <laughs> you can go either direction. <laughs> That's the moral of the story when you're buying individual stocks. Diversify. Yeah. And actually, if I can interject, um, yes. even ETFs aren't bad saves, especially sector and regional. Because I have yet another shame story. I don't think I gave you this one, Sean. Just about, I think it was January of 2022, I had the brilliant idea to diversify my oil stocks by buying Russia, a Russia ETF. Because after all, they got Gazprom and all that stuff. There's another one that's gone to virtually zero one month after I bought it. Had I even called up Jason or even Lisa, I'm sure he would have talked me out of it, but I didn't. And so there's another little loss. It's why now you wonder why I'm still working at 70. (laughs) I mean, and we haven't even talked about the 1972 car that you sold. So uh. (laughs) that wasn't a security, but that was just a painful memory. (laughs) Lisa, how about you? When you think about past emotional money events? Like early on in my career, because I went into journalism, I don't have a pension or anything like that. So saving for me has been a pretty big goal because you don't know what's going to happen, right? I'm sure John can vouch for me on this. The journalists don't often have pensions. So I, I remember even people arguing with me that I was saving too much, which is a funny thing to say. <laughs> Do you still have that problem? <laughs> That I'm saving too much? No, I'm just joking. That's not a... <laughs> well, I, th- I think the biggest financial mistake that Lisa made was deciding to go into journalism, where when they, right. the first day of <laughs> journalism school, they say, will you please t- undertake to take the, the sacred oath of journalistic poverty? <laughs> <laughs> but similarly to Lisa, it's the same not reason why I stay. But just like that there's no pension, generally. <laughs> yeah, and, and the salaries are not uh, municipal that way. Well, you know, this makes me think about this idea of the worst financial advice. And I think that just because you're talking about journalism and it doesn't have a pension. And yes, that puts a huge financial strain on people. I was recently talking to my parents. They're both teachers and they're retired now. And they said, if we weren't teachers, I don't know how we would have been able to retire. Like this defined benefit pension is just so amazing. But I feel like, John, perhaps you like being a journalist. In journalism, you're, you're, you mentioned you're seven years old, still working. I've read your pieces on semi-retired and how people would like to continue working in retirement. And I think there's this feeling of know, purpose or fulfillment when there's not too many pressures around it. I'm queuing this up that sometimes we make financial decisions based solely on the financial outcome. Maybe Lisa is going to have a really fulfilling career as a, in journalism, but she's got to save. You guys all know, the, I guess, the need to have individual advice. So let's get to the worst financial advice that we see on a holistic lens, these universal truths. And I think for me, at least, that's when I start to see that, okay, this is bad advice when we hold something as a truth for Jason, Jason, Lisa, and John, and Sean. Let's just think about our own lens of what is that worst financial advice. Perhaps, uh, Jason Heath, let's start with you. And I'm going to cue you on this one. I read an article about your biggest myths in personal finance, and you had four of them listed. I don't know if you recall the four. I I remember the article. I don't know if I remember the four off the top of my head. Dividend stocks are risky. CPP will run out and always max out your RSP. I thought these were interesting because they can easily be perceived as a universal truth. 
And so maybe let's just talk about this idea of worse financial advice can come from when we're just applying this blanket advice to everyone and be really rigid around it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that it's important to remember when it comes to personal finance that the, the personal part of it really needs to be emphasized. It's, it you know, really does work differently for, for everybody. Well, the one thing that, that popped into my head was home ownership. You know, how you have to get into the market as, as soon as you can and real estate build wealth. And I've seen people over the course of the last few years that have bitten off more home they can chew. And I think kind of the Canadian real estate market over the course of the last 20 years, you know, depending where you live, I mean, it is regional to a certain extent, but most of Canada has had a really good 20-year run through real estate. And I think there's a lot of young people who have been coerced into the real estate market, but they're never going to be able to afford a home if they don't do it. And we're starting to see that turn a little bit. Real estate prices, softening, interest rates increasing, you know, mortgages where the payments are are jumping. And I think that you've got to be careful about those universal truths. Sometimes the person who's sharing the truth with you has benefited by being a homeowner, for example, for 20 years and might encourage you to become house rich and cash poor. I think that's a real sort of timely example of how you got to be careful about universal truths. Just before we move on, it's interesting on the real estate side. I find that when people are looking at their investment portfolios, they're easy to criticize like maybe some poor performance in a two, three year span. But real estate, for some reason, is just like this glory of the best investment ever. And when I engage in conversations, which I have to be careful about because I, I just because, and uh, they forget all the nuance that goes along with investing in real estate. Jason, why do you think, whether it's real estate or these other fun, cool, sexy investments that are not by fireside portfolios with your clients, why do you get the sense that people are like drawn to do something else than what is like evidence-based sound advice? I think sometimes it's, it's just what they've seen work for others. You know, a lot of people that I've seen who have become landlords, for example, over the last few years have seen other people they know make a lot of money buying real estate or their home value has appreciated significantly. So they figure, okay, I'm going to buy a, a rental property or something like that. Personally, I think in a, a normal environment, rental property should probably provide a similar rate of return to a portfolio of stocks and bonds. It couldn't be a magical way to, to make money. Sorry, and, what's that? And it shouldn't be. <laughs> it shouldn't be. It, I mean, look, there's a lot of people, especially where I live in, in the greater Toronto area, have done quite well. And a home, I don't think, should be an investment. It should be a place to, to lay out. Right? But depending who you're talking to and where country they're located, that might be an argument that doesn't go over too well. A lot of people have, have you know, done quite well in real estate, obviously, over the last 20 years. But over the next 20, you know, I'm not as optimistic. Thank you. How about you, Jason Evans? What's the worst financial advice that you've seen or continue to hear? I don't know if it would be the advice per se, but the compensation around the advice or the belief that the advice might be free. And this would be the situations where someone's speaking to an insurance advisor or advisor at the bank and just not being aware of the, the compensation structure of that advisor and how it influences the recommendations that they may make. I do a lot of work with pension employees. So employees who do have pensions 
And some of them have the option to remain in the pension in retirement, or they can conversely take out a lump sum in retirement. And that is a huge decision. I recently had one where the decision was a million dollars to take it out, or they can leave it and have a pension for the rest of their life. And that decision is so big that it warrants having a second opinion, especially if the advisor that you get that first opinion is going to get paid as a result of one choice versus another. And it can be really hard to make that decision to get that second opinion, but I think it has a lot of value and it isn't just, yeah, it's just so big of a decision that it it definitely warrants getting that second opinion. Yeah, I think I I hear you going back to that fiduciary or that duty to disclose when someone is going to get a a relatively significant pay as an advisor for doing one decision, not the other. I hear you saying that, I think I hear you saying that that should be disclosed. We all do our things and get paid and it's okay to get paid. But when it's hidden in such a significant matter or decision like that, I, I hear you with that. That conversation needs to be happening. John, I found it fascinating that you have so many pieces on providing good advice and sharing poor advice. But I thought one was interesting. You brought it up already. You mentioned newsletters. And you actually specifically said U.S. newsletters. So can you touch on why you feel, and again, I'm not using universal because we're talking about that. That's not, that's not a good thing to do. But why can universal or, uh, newsletters be a poor source of financial information? Well, the reason I picked on U.S. newsletters is because I... I find the Canadian ones are pretty good. In particular, Gordon Papes, um, Pat McHugh's, they're quite responsible. They tend to be the blue chip, the kind of Canadian stocks that we will all own or or U.S. ones uh, that are blue chips. Whereas the the U.S. newsletters tend to, I guess, as I said in an article, uh, can't really recommend an asset allocation ETF where you're trying to sell unique, get rich quick. In fact, I think at one of our recent hub blog I did, I'm uh, quoting, I think, Pat McHugh, because he does write for the uh, Independence Hub. Sometimes uh, he was calls them GRQ, which I didn't know until recently. I think Jason used the phrase recently, just uh, get rich quickly. And uh, so you tend to have these small little micro caps that uh, if they work, it'd be like, you know, buying Apple in the year 2000. <laughs> but uh, just as easily, they go the other direction. So I just sort of concluded that... Uh, that newsletters are in the business of, it's sort of like the same thing on websites, uh, clickbait sort of thing. And they're really interested in uh, having a lot of activity and getting people, they want to have a big winner that they can go with, oh, 500% gains. But I'm not sure that they're all that responsible in infesting up to their losses. Uh, again, the, the, the particular newsletter, am I allowed to mention it yet now, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say his first name was Ted. That newsletter, well, I canceled it. So I don't know if they ever did publicly acknowledge that they're, they made some really bad recommendations. But there are a couple others as well. I mean, it wasn't just that. I, I, I had an advisor who I still use. And he said, you know, the trauma journalist journalists is you fall for every big story out there, right? And we tend to, it's an occupational hazard. And while I'm on the, the, the subject of journalism, I, I should say, I should correct some of us. I, I think there are, if you go to work for the CBC, if you're a journalist in the CBC, it's like working for the government or being a politician, you probably do have a defined benefit pension. I was at the Globe and Mail early in my career and they had a defined benefit plan. And I lacked like, another mistake. Probably I left, you know, three years after 
joining in in my late 20s. And uh, that was the the beginning of my personal RSP. I I commuted the, the, the DB pension. And, and and then that became my, and ever since I never had a real proper pension. Well, I did at the Financial Post, but it wasn't inflation index. So there are, there are pensions in journalism, but, but, but there's certainly few and far between. And, and because journalists change jobs so quickly, you tend to do what I do and collapse the thing and you never really hang in. Whereas, you know, I tell my daughter who's 32, like, you know, really you should just get a job with the federal government or the Ontario government. You know, as soon as you graduate from college and just hang in there for 35 years for your life and collect that divine benefit pension plan. Don't know if I answered your question, John. <laughs> yeah, no. And so, John, I'm curious, you have been writing about personal finance for 35 years or over, is that correct? Well, I guess so. I took over from Bruce Coe. I, I originally was, when I was at the Globe, I wasn't a personal finance writer. I was a high-tech writer, actually one of their first ones. Mm-hmm. I interviewed uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs back in the day. So it wasn't until I went to the Post, and Bruce Cohen was, and still is, a really good personal finance writer. I think he really did properly retire. Mike, he, he did bury a teacher. <laughs> and so I took, I think it was around 96 that I took over that personal finance beat. And I wrote a few mutual fund guides and then, you know, and then got into ETFs. I, I realized I, the Financial Post had a, a bunch of books I wrote uh, with Porter. It was called Smart Funds about mutual funds. That was Back in the, the heyday when Gordon Pape was writing uh, a mutual fund guide every year, I had the, uh, the the foolish idea of competing with him, along with Duff Young and a few other people. Um, but actually, I decided as I started to learn about high MER, Jason can tell you this stuff. So the, I wrote the book Wealthy Boom, The Wealthy Boomer, uh, Life After Mutual Funds. And, uh, and I, I concluded that the very free smart funds was an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> Again, did I answer your question? Sure. Yeah, I have no expectations. But what, what I'm thinking about is, so over this 30, 35 years you've been writing in around money, if you had a column on the left-hand side with all the bad advice or the fad advice that is just trying to attract attention and clicks or your money for the wrong reasons, so the left-hand side is the bad advice you've seen in 35 years. The right-hand side is the good advice, the sound advice. Which list would be bigger? Well, the bad advice is going to be bigger. The good advice is really short. I mean, Jason could write it, you know, on the on the fingers of one hand, the, the pieces of good advice, you know, like the dollar cost average, uh, buy, you know, invest for the long term, buy low cost, broadly diversified ETFs. If you want fixed income, maybe ETFs could do it or maybe GIC ladders or, or you know, whatever. I, I, I don't profess to be a fixed income expert. I find it full of pitfalls, as we all found out in 2022. So, but the list of good things is, like I said, it's a very short list. The list of bad things is, is endless. I mean, like you know, I have one of these newsletters and every unscrupulous financial advisor, the ones that are, and most of them are, are good, but not all, they would have a big list of poor recommendations as well. But I, it really comes down to, I think, the more you emphasize market timing, individual securities, and constantly changing your mind on strategies. I think Bob uh, Lai at uh, Takan Newsletter had a thing, I think today or yesterday, about uh, how patience is the biggest, most important thing in investing. And he was bemoaning this exact topic of, you know, one year for six months you're into momentum investing, and then six months later you change your strategy to, to uh, value. And then it's uh, ETFs, and then it's uh, individual stocks, and then it's dividend investing, and then it's a hybrid. It's like 
be consistent, stick to the plan. You know, good advice is, I mean, right now I would say to somebody, just buy an asset allegation ETF, you know, add to it monthly and quarterly, and we'll see you in 30 years. And I hope that Jason Heath advised you well and everybody gets happy at the end of it. So it could be very simple. But unfortunately, the industry is the opposite. And the media industry and the newsletter industry and the website industry, they're all about uh, keeping people busy and anxious and, oh, I got to reconfigure. Now I got to buy a defense ETF because the world's World War III is happening and it, it never ends. And, you know, when you think of like evolutionary speaking humans, we are like hardwired to avoid this pain. So when these fads come up and people are writing, you're doomed if your portfolio looks like that or... If you're not investing in real estate, you're going to be broke. We, I feel like we're, we're drawn to these titles because we're like, oh no, I don't want that to be me. Lisa, I want to come to the survey, but before Jason, do you have anything to add about what you have seen in your career of how people react to bad advice versus good advice and what type of conversations do you have with them to help them see good advice is sometimes very simple. Which Jason? <laughs> oh, sorry, Jason Heath. I was looking at you. Couldn't you, you see? <laughs> I should have known. I should have seen your yeah. eyes. But you know what I find sometimes is, you know, people have a hard time deciphering between good and bad advice. Even sometimes good and bad performance. You know, it's interesting. I, I've had clients over the years that I work with that, you know, look at their investment performance in 2022, for example, and say, lost 5%. My advisor's a horrible job. I'm really disappointed. And I find to have conversations with people to say, hey, you know how much markets were down last year? Like on an absolute basis, you lost money, but on a relative basis, you did quite well, right? Or other situations where I've had clients whose advisors have told them, oh, you know, we're, we're nervous about the markets and we're going to hold a bunch of cash or we're going to invest when markets go down as if market timing weren't for that easy or just other scenarios that come up. I, again, I think it's difficult for the lay person to decipher between what's good and what's bad. And one of the big challenges, just going back to, to some of Jason Evans alluded to, is most people trust financial advisors. Most people should be able to trust financial professionals. But unfortunately, a lot of the advice that there is bias or given by people who are specialists in products like mutual funds, but not necessarily in investor psychology and tax planning and retirement and other things like that. So I think it's uh, it's important to take things with a great assault. Let the bad advice in it there. The simple advice, as John alluded to, it's a short list. Boring. Kind of boring for the media. It's boring for financial advisors. Boring for consumers of financial advice. And I think that's why sometimes we gravitate to the complexity and you know, the daily gyration of investment markets and advice that exist out there. It would be so interesting to take John's first article from 30 whatever years ago to see how true that advice still is. And yet we're still trying to get people to do it because all these bad US, oh, I shouldn't say this, all these bad newsletters out there. I, I was joking for anyone who has a newsletter. Lisa, Money Sense recently did a, a poll of their readers and I found it interesting in the types of distribution channels that people are obtaining financial information. Can you touch on that section or any other ones you find relevant? But I was really interested in like that, the growing channel, especially of like the non-advisor channel. Advisors are still like a huge part of 
financial information for our readers. But what I loved seeing and learning from our audience was that they're using multiple resources, which is something that Jason Evans pointed to is like almost like fact checking the fact. Mm. So yeah, so the the top of the list was specialized media, such as Money Sense, which is no surprise because <laughs> we were obviously polling Money Sense audience. So there was 79% of our audience used that as their main source of financial information. And then came financial advisors or planners at 53%. So it's not to say that financial advisors are not where they're getting their information, but it's just one of the sources. And to be honest, I love that. Like I'm sure both Jason and John would appreciate that readers are talking to their advisors, but also are educating themselves on the outside of that. And being able to come to the table and ask questions as opposed to, what do you need me to do? Okay, good. Mm -hmm. Done. Signed off. Because it also opens up the conversation between the advisors and their clients, right? Because that's when you're going to get at the, the, the meat of the conversation of like, what are your goals? And why do you want to put your money here or there? And also misbusting too. A friend of a friend told me I should be doing this. What do you think? So that's what mm-hmm. I love about learning that our audience is, is really pulling from multiple sources. They obviously like books. John, I'm sorry to say newsletters was part of it, but I'm hoping that it's a money <laughs> sense newsletter <laughs> and not the, the ones that you lost money with. Amer- those are American. Money sense is Canadian, so we're okay. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also look to their firms and banks and other financial institutions at 35%. Obviously, mass media was 35%. So that's not obviously that it was 35%, but obviously media was included in that list. Friends and family are another key one. So it's 21%. So that means one in five are looking towards friends and family for a source. And I'm noticing that some of you are cringing at that. (laughs) (laughs) Another cool thing was prospectus and any other investment documents that they could get their hands on. Podcasts. Juan, I'm sure you appreciate that one. That was 18%. Online brokers, social media is definitely a growing area for investment advice and money advice. TikTok alone has been seen like a huge rise in, in financial and in financial influencers now called finfluencers. <laughs> yeah, and how good how good is the TikTok advice? I'm, I sort of wonder. It, it runs the gamut, to be honest. So you'll have like basic financial literacy, telling people this is what an RRSP is. And then you'll have people who are like, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. So it it can be entertaining if you are taking a step back and looking at all of it from like a multiple source. But if you, it's your only source of information. The one thing I've also written about social media and, and financial influencers. And the one key takeaway is that you are learning their lessons. So when they lose money, you are also learning that lesson if you follow their advice. It's interesting. We haven't really even talked about crypto here or, or marijuana stocks. I mean, every time you get into an idea and a specialized you know, thing, that's where the trouble starts, it would appear. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. If, hey? Especially on TikTok. Especially on TikTok, yeah. So I, I would think that social media inflamed a lot of those memes. Well, I mean, uh, ne- never mind the meme stocks, but... Uh, I think we, now that we have Sam Bankman-Fried uh, all, all locked up, uh, the crypto <laughs> fever has broken. <laughs> when you said that, so we, the last question of the survey was open-ended and we just asked people what the worst advice they were given. 
And so we did a word map out of that. And the biggest word was buy. So the worst advice is always around what to buy. Yeah, this is just making me think of like the the amount of people that are going on that secondary channel or even primary in some cases of social media or specialized media as Money Sense called it. And Pre Banerjee was on a few episodes ago talking about his doctoral research and 12% of his demographic that he researched were identifying social media as a primary source of information. So we know that TikTok, Twitter, or X is really grabbing a lot of attention, but the the people on there are kind of flooded. Uh, Dr. Brad Klontz was recently on and we were just talking about TikTok, or, yeah, TikTok and how his mission, so this includes all of us. He's encouraging everyone who knows about financial planning and does it well to get on TikTok because we have to flood out all the influencers who are doing it for the worst reasons. It's fascinating that we are going there. And I like the idea that we can fact check. And I just think it's wonderful when it's paired with a financial planner, not relying solely on some kid who says that he has like millions of dollars and taking pictures of these Porsches or nice vehicles when he rents them, which is a real thing. People are renting vehicles to take pictures. It's wild. Jason Evans, yep. you have been active on TikTok or um, uh, Twitter. Twitter. How X. has your experience <laughs> been on uh, X? Sorry. <laughs> How has your experience on X been in having these conversations with your followers? Yeah, it's been an interesting experience. I've been trying to put out, put out more content for Financial Literacy Month in November. And I've had some good responses, but I've also looked at other accounts on the platform to see what's working for them and who are the popular accounts are and what kind of stuff they're posting, what gets attention, what gets shared and that sort of thing. And I think even if all of the good financial planners were to get on social media and start posting quality financial advice, it would still be outweighed by the bad advice just because the bad advice is so much better at attracting attention and to just being eye-catching and shocking and the algorithm that the social media platform uses really picks up on that and starts, once you get a single like or click on something, it'll start showing you more of that same thing. So it kind of sucks you into that funnel of getting those hot stock tips or buy this crypto or that sort of thing. So it's really just a feedback system that even with good advice, it can be hard to counteract that negative advice. And there's so many people on those channels. Jason Heath, how have you if anything at all, thought about integrating social media into your practice? I have to admit, I'm not very active on social media. I'm, I'm fairly active in traditional media. I write a lot of articles. I probably write 75 articles a year and uh, do a lot more interviews and share that quite a bit on social media. But I'll be honest, I'm going to be the contrarian here on, on TikTok influencers. I mean, look, I'm, I'm biased. I I write for traditional media, so I'd, I'd rather people read from those sources. I'm a financial planner that gets paid to provide financial advice. But I look at what some of the influencers are doing and I feel like even if it's bad advice, there's there's some good to it. At least it's bringing more attention to financial topics. Like my, my kids are, are teenagers. And I think over the last couple of years, some of the questions they've asked me about stocks, investing, cryptocurrency. I mean, I, I didn't hear about investing when I was 13 years old. 
And I feel like at least if nothing else, these influencers have brought awareness and learning and education. We're learning the wrong stuff, even with some of its flawed. You know, there is something to be said, I think, about just causing people to talk about and want to learn with their finances. So lots of bad advice. At least it's something. At least it's getting people interested in money. Yeah, I've read stats that say like there are more people investing in their 20s than any other generation previously, or really? even just like managing their their finances. Because I mean, TikTok, as far as I can see, is pretty generational, young people. And uh, at least the blessing is they've got a lot, lots of time ahead to, uh, you know, basically overcome whatever terrible errors they make early on. <laughs> if, if the retirees start, you know, counting on yeah. TikTok, then we got a real trouble, real problem. I think yeah. they're here. I'm going to be honest. I, I agree, think they yeah. are there. <laughs> well, I'm not just retiring. I'm not on TikTok, but I'm, I am on, on, a, on a three or four of these things. But, yeah. uh, you, you know, you guys made me think of a business proposition for Jason Heath and John. You should license all your articles to like a young TikTok person to give them proper information. <laughs> and they might just be good at social media and you can give them some good content. We yeah. get on, on uh, quite a few social posts. Money Pardon? Sent. We get sourced on, on, oh, many on some social posts. John, how about you? As you've seen media change over the last 35 years, what role do you see that media plays in providing financial guidance to Canadians? You're talking about mass media or social media? or both? Media. I intentionally just said media. So <laughs> Media in general. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you can talk about multimedia, we did a piece for, uh, again, for Lisa and Money Sense on... Uh, um, Kyle Pribo's course, uh, which is a pretty good multimedia um, financial literacy. Are you ready for retirement? What's it called? Four Steps to Retirement or something like that. You tell me. Worry-free retirement. Worry-free retirement. Who doesn't want a worry-free uh, retirement? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've done my share of, of mass media. I had a, a CBC hit just last week where they were talking about, you know, working to the ripe old age of 70 and, and all that entails. But uh, certainly I, I, I use social media. If I've written a piece for Lisa uh, or on my own site or in the, in the old days, other places, the Globe, the Post, et cetera, see, social media to me is just a magnifier to you know, say, hey, this has been written. Jason does it, I think. You know, you see my story in Money's Hands. Or in, who are you writing for these days? The Post, I guess. Ransom Pilots, Legacy Road, yeah. Yeah. So to me, but, but there you're just pointing them to here's, here's, here you're going to go to Money Sense for, the, for a, a more definitive piece or the Globe or whatever. I, I, hopefully you're not acting on a, a, a 300 word soundbite strictly on, on um, TikTok. You're just saying point and click and go to the link. I mean, that's the way I use it because I, I don't, I don't think I, very often will try to summarize one's whole financial um, strategy in a single tweet or, or X. What is an X now? <laughs> if it, it's not a tweet, what is it? Post. An X, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, so, so to me, it's it's the difference between defining your, this is this is the way as to pointing the way and, and going to more credible media mm. like the Globe or the Post or any sense. So we've been really going in and out of bad advice, good advice. The reality is, is there's so much advice. And as humans, we only can consume and like absorb X amount of advice. I would like to go around the room and just get one piece. I know it's more advices, but one simple, I guess, 
recommendation you would give to help Canadians navigate this really difficult landscape of trying to save, trying to manage advice, trying to stay clear of crypto stocks, as you mentioned, or crypto when it's coming to the forefront, John, or the marijuana stocks or whatever the next ones will be. So perhaps we can go around and just one piece that you would share with the listeners to help them navigate their journeys. As you're thinking about that, Lisa, from this poll, what do you think you learned the most from in terms of how we can start navigating our financial lives, I guess, a little more comfortably where we're not just running around for all this crazy, wrong, terrible advice that's around? I think the, when it came to the open-ended question about like what was the worst advice you ever got, what I found was interesting was how sometimes the bad advice was conflicting. So one person would say they were told not to do something and then another person would say they were told to do something, but it was the exact same action. And so to me, that really pointed out the necessity of looking at advice and how that affects you personally. So what might be bad advice for someone could also be good advice for another person, which I thought was super interesting. I didn't expect that to come from the study at all. I I really appreciate that. I mean, we kind of opened up with this universal truths aren't so universal. So thank you for that. How about you, Jason Evans, when you think about providing some advice that people can hold on to as they navigate their financial journeys, what would you say? Yeah, my one piece of advice would be the old proverb, trust but verify. I think... Mm -hmm. Financial literacy and financial education is such a big topic that it can be overwhelming. But if you have a single decision that you're trying to make, putting the effort into either verifying that for yourself, doing some quality research from various sources, or getting that second opinion, either one can help you verify the information that you get from whatever source it may be, be it social media or a financial advisor. Thank you. How about you, John? Well, I rely on the old one. Uh, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, so when you're assessing any get-rich-quick uh, scheme, and you're getting all excited because, oh, wow, I'm going to have a thousand to one gain here. You pro- Probably not. Except for the iPod. Except for the iPod, yeah. <laughs> my, my, I was going to say, you know, ignore all, ignore all advice, especially this piece. <laughs> yeah, that would. Yeah, I'm not in character with this. Because all, gener- all generalizations are dangerous, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's your ultimate conundrum. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how about you, Jason Heath? Yeah, you know what I will say? I, I've been uh, practicing as a financial planner for over 20 years now. And um, a good part of my day is spent helping make sure that people have enough money to live until they're 95 years old. And... Personally and professionally, the last five years in particular, I've just had, you know, people that have not lived to 95 years old that it's caused me to sort of step back and reflect quite honestly on some of the advice that, that I give. Am I telling people to save too much or work too long or be too conservative? And I often tell people now as a result, you know, it's important to save for the future, but it's also important to live today, it really was a fine balance. Like you don't want to focus solely on on living for today and, and ignore your financial future. But if all you do is save and expect to you know live a long life, you might miss opportunities in the meantime. So I think personal finance and, and retirement saving in particular really needs to be a balance. 
Jason, I really appreciate that. And I feel like you've queued up the next question. And we'll start with Lisa on this one. As I was preparing for today, John, I came across a post of yours. It was, I can't remember the title I, I wrote down, but I don't see it. It's about the five classic financial independence books. And on those, that list, you had Vicki Robbins, Your Money, Your Life, Enough by John Bogle, How to Retire Happy, Wild, and Free, Work Optional, and then Personalize Your Nest Egg. When I was looking at those, I felt like four of the five had a strong theme to what Jason just talked about. We have these like three versions of ourselves, the past, the present, and the future. And I think financial planning really, I think, can involve all of those. We can have the nostalgia of what felt good. We can act in the moment and enjoy, but also we got to plan for that future self. But your, your book choices made me think about what is enough. So my question here, as you guys are all in the financial planning space, whether you're a journalist or a financial planner, what do you think enough means in a financial plan or Lisa and John in your, your writing when we are writing about people navigating their financial lives? Lisa, let's start with you. What does the word enough mean from your perspective in a financial journey? So for myself or like in broad generalizations? You can or generalize it that, yourself. Right? Yeah. To be honest, when it comes to money, for me, it's not so much about having enough. It's just like, do I want to do this? So do I want to spend on whatever? Do I want to put my money into this? And that's really the question that I ask myself. It's not so much about what the risk and the reward is. Is like, am I going to wake up tomorrow and still be good about it? I feel like that really helps maybe combat some of this advice that gets thrown at us is when we can like internalize it. How does this impact my own journey? Not just like, yeah. oh, someone else is doing this. I better run and do it. I don't want to be up all night thinking about like a decision. <laughs> <laughs> John, this was off of your post. So how, if anything at all, have you thought about the role enough plays in the financial, personal finance space? Yeah, well, again, Vogel's book enough certainly sums up uh, a lot of the philosophy. I, in contrast to that, I, I can't help thinking about uh, my favorite villain politician, Donald Trump, and his niece, Mary Trump, wrote a book about Donald called, anybody know? Too Much and Never Enough. So this guy was given you know, millions as a kid. And, you know, I don't believe he's ever, he's ever a billionaire, but he, he certainly got enough money for most of us, but it's not enough because now he wants fame, he wants power. Mm -hmm. And like, he doesn't know when, that's per Mary's title, when is, is, is enough way too much? So too much, is, what a contrast. Bogle's enough, Mary Trump's too much and never enough. Uh, whether that adds up to a coherent thought, I don't know, Sean, but that's the best I can do. No, I, I appreciate that. And for, for those who haven't read the book enough by Bogle, it's, it's a really great book. Jason Evans, how about yourself? How do you think about enough if you do? Yeah, I think my concept of enough relates to Jason Heath's comment about potentially oversaving and finding that balance between now and later. Um, both of my parents passed well before retirement age. So I am keenly aware that retirement may not come or it may not last very long. And I think enough for me is being able to have enough money to have shared experience experiences with loved ones. And it doesn't have to be enough. It doesn't have to be a lot to have shared experiences. They don't have to be grand world trips. But as long as it's enough to have that time with quality loved ones and 
that's enough for me. Thank you. So Jason Heath, you kind of answered a version of this, but if we went, you don't have to, but if you decide to go deeper on the, what does enough, as you've had this realization, like, hey, am I telling the clients to save too much, as you said? How, if anything at all, has that changed the way you personally perceive enough in your life? It's a very good question. You know, and, and exactly, I'll, I'll say it. It's something I, I do struggle with a little bit myself, you know, trying to maintain work-life balance as a business owner and, and as a father of three teenage children. It's hard to figure out, you know, what the right amount is for a lot you. When I look at clients, I've worked thousands of clients in my career and feel the vast majority worry about running out of money and, and having enough. Even if they're much older right. than me and they have much more money than, than I, and you know, I'm sitting on the other side of the table thinking you're never going to run out. Why would you worry? And then there's a small group of people that have enough that are never going to run out. And they worry about something different. They worry, am I giving enough to my kids? Am I giving enough to charity? Am I making the right choices? So it's really weird. I, I'd say. 99% of the clients I've worked with over my career worry about money and worry about enough in different ways. And I think that's an important lesson that, you know, you, you need to try to focus a little bit less on, on some of those money concerns and money issues. My, my mother who, who passed away, unfortunately, she was relatively young, like Jason's parents, she was 66. She used to tell me, you know, money won't keep you warm at night, Jason. And that's something that's stuck with me. I've seen people with a lot more money than I, but, you know, it, it hasn't solved their problems. It hasn't prevented their cancers or divorces or other things that happen. So sometimes and up is just being content with what you have, I think. Uh, Jason, I, I correct you. If you burn money, it will keep you warm at night. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, literally. Yeah. You yeah. I was going to say something about the fire movement on this this topic because there's a lot of different you know fire independence financial independence retire early. I mean, I I got somebody a blog. I, what's his name? Alan Guial. Do anybody know him in Montreal? He came from I think uh, Colombia, and he lives a very lean. You know, it's not even a fat fire. It's a lean fire lifestyle in uh, in Montreal. He uh, he rents. He bicycles everywhere. Doesn't own a car. So I mean, he, he his idea of enough. Is I think he could get by on twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year, uh, which is probably more less than most. But most of us here think is enough. So it, it, obviously, it's a, it's a relative concept. And I think wow. the fire people, and I think one of the books you mentioned that I mentioned, uh, what, which was the one by Tanya, retire early. Or what was it? Uh, work optional. Work optional. That's it. So to me, the work optional really sums it up nicely. And so it's like, how much is enough? Well. If you have the option to work, you don't have to work, but you've, you're, you're going to, you choose to, then probably you reach that critical enough figure. Very, very important conversations, I feel, this enough. And Jason, 99.9% of the people have that worry, as you had said. So it's applicable for all. So maybe we forget about the crypto stock for a moment and just ponder what enough is. Lisa, this conversation, as we come to an end, was really spearheaded by the article you wrote. Do you have any closing thoughts in terms of the, what the conversation has been linking to the intention of your article? No, I thought this was great. The reason I reached out to Jason, Jason and John, as well as Stephanie and yourself, Sean, is because I wanted to frame what our audience was telling us 
about the worst advice and get some insights from professionals who understand behaviors and what the markets really look like and how to manage those conversations with a family. Because oftentimes, the worst advice can be quite aggressive. So I really appreciate, appreciate all of your insight on how to deal with the worst advice. Well, thank you for bringing up that article. And uh, I hope people continue to read it on Money Sense. And thank you so much. Before we go, maybe just let everyone know, when I say everyone, listeners, where they can find you and your content or businesses. Let's start with you, Jason Evans. Yep. So I'm active on X, formerly Twitter. And I'm also, I've got a website, which I occasionally publish a blog at evansretirement.ca. Thank you. How about you, John? I've long been on Twitter. I only wrote, I only post financial stuff. I avoid politics on Twitter for obvious reasons. Uh, I've always been at John Chevro, J-O-N Chevro. Uh, and in order to snaffle off that uh, coveted handle, I've, I'm, I also am John Chevro at uh, uh, Threads, Facebook Threads, and also on Mastodon. And then the fourth one would be uh, LinkedIn. I maybe Jonathan Chevro or something like that. So those four, obviously, I, I try to write a column whenever Lisa wants me to write one for Money Sense. And I have my own site, FindependenceHub.com or FinancialIndependenceHub.com. That's it. Thank you. We'll, we'll include all that. And Jason Heath, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I write uh, primarily for Money Sense. I write weekly so you can find me there. Write monthly for the Financial Post, quarterly for uh, Canadian Money Saver. I'm semi-active, mildly active on uh, on X. I'm at Jason Heath CFP and on LinkedIn, and uh, my company is Objective Financial Partners, based in Toronto. But we work most of our clients in Canada. So great, and we'll include those as well. And Lisa, what do you have to say about Money Sense? Where can we find Money Sense? We can definitely go to MoneySense.ca. Our social hand- handles. Or, um, across every social channel, Money Sense or Money Sense Mag. Myself, it's Lisa Hannum. I always get my name first, even if I have nothing to post. So you can find me pretty mm-hmm. much everywhere. And yes, yeah, sign up for the Money Sense newsletter. It is not one of the ones that John lost money on. It is the good <laughs> one. <laughs> and we have investing. We have a financial literacy one called Money Fit. And then we also have the weekly, which is a roundup of the week's article. Well, thank you for all of your work you do at Money Sense. And John, I have to say, I have a lot of listeners from the United States and those ones have great newsletters. I, I would say one, one exception, Motley Fool, who used to be a client, I, 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 they are not one of the bad ones, put it that yeah. way. Well, thank you all. I appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. That was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're still listening, perhaps you did find it enjoyable. And if that's the case, you can support the show in one of two ways. One is to share this episode with a family, friend, colleague, or post it on social media. The other is to head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review or to subscribe to the show. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.